0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to another edition of the Hidden Layers Podcast, where we talk about all the exciting ways marketing, data, and deep learning are colliding. We love to talk about how AI and other technologies are affecting the world while hopefully learning a few new things along the way. This episode, we are very lucky to have Juergen Schmidhula, one of the most important pioneers in deep learning. Many of his discoveries have driven most of the deep learning products we experience on a daily basis today. We'll get into that in a minute. He is currently director and professor at the Swift AI Lab, IDSEA, and co-founder, chief scientist at Nascence, along with uh, being a professor at a university there in Lugano. He's joining us today all the way from Lugano. Thank you so much, Jürgen, for uh, being here today. Thanks for having me, so let's get right into it. You know, we, we have a uh, group of people that listen to this podcast that are um, pretty tech savvy from a marketing perspective. They, they use a lot of technology. They, they use a lot of very sort of advanced uh, capabilities. But deep learning is pretty new to marketing. And um, the technical details of it are not necessarily widespread. And we, we don't really have time to go into a lot of the technical details. But I'd like to go over some of the, some of the very important discoveries that you've made, um, especially the one called long-short-term memory, or LSTM. Uh, that neural network structure has revolutionized basically everything. It's sort of what made the giant leap after Hinton's back-propagation uh, discovery into what is possible for Siri and Alexa. Um, I would love if you could help our our listeners understand why that discovery was so important and why it made it possible for us to basically speak to computers. Mm. Well,
1: uh, first of all, since you are um, interested in marketing, one should probably emphasize that currently most of the profits in artificial intelligence are really in marketing and advertising because uh, that's what the major um, companies do, such as Google and Baidu and Facebook and Tencent and Amazon and Alibaba, the, the, these great companies on the Pacific coast. How do they make money? Through marketing. And um, they use AI, in particular this long short-term memory uh, network that you mentioned, to predict uh, what is uh, this customer going to like next what kind of ad is he likely to click at and so they take all the data that is coming in from millions of customers and from there they learn to predict what do customers usually do and how do they react to my advertisements and how do they react to my suggestions what they should uh, buy next and so on and although marketing is just a small percentage of the world economy uh, it 's big enough to make these companies pretty much the most valuable companies in the world, so uh, today, most of the profits in AI are in marketing and um, and AI and tailored marketing was um, uh, the central theme that made um, uh, google and Facebook take pretty much um, something like 50% of the advertising market of the Western world, and similar in China. You have Tencent and uh, Alibaba and companies like that. So what is this um, long short term memory? It's a particular neural network. And before you mentioned. Um, older things uh, such as um, you know, backpropagation, and backpropagation, of course, goes back a long way. Uh, the the first guy who really wrote down the formula for modern backpropagation, that was the Finnish guy, Seppo Lina Inma. Seppo Lina Inma in Helsinki in 1970, in his master thesis, he wrote down this technique for uh, improving, for figuring out in a complicated network, how much did some connection uh, influence uh, the output? So you have there lots of nodes in that network and uh, these nodes are all connected through connections and some of these connections have strengths uh, or weights which say um, how much does this uh, node over here influence that other node over there at the next time step. And then uh, you you have this network computing something, input is coming in, output is coming out, and there's a difference between what uh, the network is computing and what it should have computed. And that difference is called the error. And Zeppolino Inma in 1970, he found out how can we efficiently compute for every single connection in the system, how much did this uh, connection contribute to the current error which means um, you know now, um, should I make this connection a little bit stronger or a little bit weaker? And that's how you can improve the whole network. So that goes back uh, almost 50 years, 1970, to a time when computers were billions of times lower than today for the same price. So, uh, 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 based on on these old uh, concepts of backpropagation, And um, neural networks, which also really go back uh, a long time, the first guy who had really uh, deep learning networks like that was the guy in the Ukraine in 1965. Um, His name was um, Iva Klenko. Together with Lapa, they published this book about deep neural networks. That um, was not called deep learning back then. It was called the group method of data handling, but they had the first deep feedforward forward networks that really learned. So all of these concepts, the basic concepts are really old. Then, what did we do there in the 90s? What, what is this long, short-term memory? The so long, short-term memory is is a recurrent network, which means it not only has uh, feed-forward connections, but also uh, feedback connections, which means that as you are um, Typing in inputs from a video, for example, or speech signals, it can kind of memorize previous inputs that it has seen before through these feedback connections. So old inputs are circling around the system through these feedback connections, which are absent in feedforward networks. And this is very interesting because that's how recurrent networks become much more powerful than feed-forward networks. In fact, any computer program that you can imagine, anything that can be computed on any general purpose computer, such as your laptop, can also be computed through a program running on a recurrent neural network, such as this long short-term memory. Uh, And the program is the weight matrix. So all these connection strengths, they make up the program collectively, And um, now the interesting question is, how can you learn uh, this program such that the network, which in in the beginning is totally stupid and knows nothing and has all these random uh, connections, which means as you're piping in input, nonsense is coming out. How can you train this network to change all these connection strengths, making some of them uh, stronger and some of them weaker, such that it can uh, do interesting things, such as Speech recognition or video recognition, and so on, and um, and that's where this LSTM principle comes in. Should I say more about that?
0: Well, can you give us an example of <clears throat> of uh, uh, like speech? You know, why why is LSTM mm. making uh, theory understand us better? How does that work, mm-hmm. practically speaking? All right so
1: what is happening during speech as you are speaking to your smartphone for example you are saying okay google what is the uh, shortest way to the station what is happening there's a microphone in your smartphone and every 10 milliseconds uh, an input vector is coming from the microphone and it has maybe 30 40 elements something like that it's just a bunch of numbers 40 numbers or something real valued numbers like 0.7 and um, 2.5 and stuff like that. And so every 10 milliseconds, um, a vector like that is arriving at the input of a long short term memory network of an LSTM. And uh, this happens 100 times per second. Now, um, suppose I say uh, 11, and another guy or myself says uh, seven. And now the network has to, to translate what it is hearing. So there comes the input in form of waves ending up at the microphone, and the output should be a sequence of letters. And the sequence of letters should correspond to the signal such that um, the network can uh, essentially translate the wave forms that are coming in into text, such that you can have a search engine query and so if we say 11, then uh, that takes about, I don't know, maybe 60 milliseconds or something. And and it's really important to memorize the first thing I said, namely U, because the U is the one that makes the 11 different from the 7. To see the difference between 11 and 7, the network somehow has to memorize for about 50 steps that there was an U and not an to see the difference between the 11 and the seven, the network has somehow to learn to put the important previous input, either the U or the S into short-term memory. And it has to learn by itself to do that from lots of training examples, and it can do that. And, and the, the reason why the LSTM is so successful is because it has a little trick built in which, um, which allows the LSTM to do that And the previous recurrent networks couldn't do that because they didn't have that strength. And the whole thing, the whole um, idea, really goes back to the beginning of the 90s when I tried to solve this deep learning problem for for recurrent networks. And I had this brilliant uh, first student um, whose name was Seth Hochreiter. Seth Hochreiter, my first student ever, and he um, uh, first, did a couple of things um, related to other ways of making these return networks work. But then he had um, fundamental insights in his diploma thesis, which showed what is the problem of this traditional backpropagation scheme that was published in 1970 by Zeppolino Inma, by the Finnish guy. And, and uh, he realized in his diploma thesis that as you are um, trying to compute these weight changes by propagating backwards these error signals that you that's what you're doing in this backpropagation scheme uh, these error signals get smaller and smaller and smaller and they quickly vanish and that's the reason why in um, in the older recurrent networks not much could be learned because um, as soon as you had small time lags between important events maybe just five steps or ten steps of time lags the network was not able to learn that. But the LSTM, finally um, coming out of this analysis, that was able to bridge these long time lag. In other words, it was able to make deep learning in recurrent networks Possible and suddenly we didn't have any problems any longer with storing certain events for 50 steps or 100 steps or a thousand steps or a million steps because the LSTM itself could really learn to um, to adjust its connections such that it was able to ignore the noise, ignore the irrelevant stuff, and was able to learn to put the important inputs into memory and keep them there in short-term memory, until maybe thousands of steps later, they were needed to come up with a, a, an important answer or a significant answer, such as um, recognizing the difference between 7 and 11, or doing much more complicated things than that.
0: <clears throat> really interesting. That's, uh, that's, that's a great explanation of, of how uh, it evolved and, and how you took uh, the old... Uh, the older research and, and uh, evolved it into what we, what we really see today. And this was back in, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, this was back in the 90s, yes, that you made this discovery.
1: That was in the 1990s. In the beginning of the 1990s, I really tried to solve this deep learning problem for returned networks, which are much more interesting than the feed-forward networks. Why are they more interesting? Because they are general-purpose computers. And so if you want to build a general purpose AI, you need as a computational substrate something like a return network because the feed-forward networks that most people were using back then, say they are much more limited and they are not general purpose computers. And so you cannot build a general purpose AI using these things. And then the question was really how to uh, overcome these limitations uh, of, the, of the existing recurrent the neural networks. And then the LSTM really was uh, the, the first answer. And then I had a sequence of um, uh, additional brilliant students, uh, in particular Felix Gears, then um, at the end of the 90s, and Alex Graves, um, a guy from Scotland, in the early 2000s. And so the vanilla LSTM, Resulted um, from that work uh, of, of these um, outstanding students over the the years, and I would say by 2005, 2006, it was more or less um,
0: what it is now. <clears throat> that's great. So, so you um, you just talked about general-purpose computers and and sort of this idea of artificial general intelligence. I know that's been a uh, a uh, goal of yours since you were very young. So can you talk a little bit about what is an artificial general intelligence, why you think it's so important, and how close we are to uh, to having uh, an AGI uh, come about? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: um, we, we have lots of uh, interesting computer programs that can do lots of uh, interesting things but you and and some of them are even superhuman in certain ways. For example, um, even 20 years ago, the, the best chess player in the world was not a human any longer. There was a program that could play chess better than any human, but it, that was the only thing it could do, and it didn't even learn that. And now, um, in, in machine learning, we are really interested in systems that can learn from scratch to solve problems, to solve problems. And ideally, we want to have a general system that not only learns to solve one problem or maybe two and that was it. No, we want to have a general system that learns to solve the first problem and then the tenth and the one hundredth problem. And after a million problems that it has solved, it still doesn't stop uh, instead from from learning something from all these different problems it also can learn to learn new problems more quickly and to accelerate the learning itself to improve its own learning procedure things like that are possible my first publication on that was really 30 years ago 1987 meta learning learning to learn and there the goal was indeed to build a universal problem solver which isn't a universal problem solver in the beginning, but learns to become a problem solver, a general problem solver, by just learning one new thing after another. And since then, we have made lots of progress. So the goal of general AI is to have not only a program that can do one thing and that's it. No, you want it to learn new things all the time, also speed up the um, learning of new skills, and you want to... um, have a, a, a general-purpose learner which uh, can expand its horizon all the time and become um, a, a more and more general problem solver without any limits, except for the limits of logics and
0: computability
1: and physics.
0: Okay, so 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 let me understand this. So let's say I. Let's say I'm, I'm dealing with, like, today's marketing uh, problem. I have, I have uh, an auto, automobile maker, Ford, and I teach a neural network uh, 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 that these are the people that buy Ford and please start predicting, you know, what, uh, solve the problem for who is going to buy a Ford, right? Fine, done, and it does great. And then I take the same neural network, and in your in your case, a general purpose intelligence could uh, be trained to say, "Okay, who's going to buy soup today?" And it would learn that, but it would still retain in memory uh, the ability to answer the Ford problem. That is that. Am I understanding that correctly? And then it could go and uh, learn how to ride a bike.
1: That's right. So, it would never stop learning new skills. The skills that you just mentioned, like selling either Fords or Chevys or uh, something, um, and maybe also learning to uh, predict which customers. Spend how much money, because maybe those that are calling from uh, certain devices, expensive devices, they have a more relaxed attitude to money, and they are willing to spend more money. And, you know, taking all these uh, information into account, that's important in marketing, and that's what the large companies try to do, and where they are using LSTM and neural networks to predict which customers are going to spend how much on which products. So there you would have then um, a a system that not only uh, can sell you Fords, but also can sell you um, uh, screwdrivers and all kinds of uh, things. But this would not yet be um, a general purpose intelligence. This would be all um, uh, possible using something that is called supervised learning and passive pattern uh, recognition. The LSTM by itself is just a passive pattern recognizer, and it's good for marketing. There you have uh, all these patterns and the incoming data of the different customers, and everybody's speaking a slightly different uh, language, and they are um, uh, different in many ways, but they also share lots of um, common traits, and so you can use that. Knowledge that the network is learning about what is common to certain groups of customers. You can use that to to um, uh, deal in a more profitable way with um, certain customers. But that is all passive pattern recognition. You can do that on your smartphone. Speech recognition runs on your smartphone. Your smartphone doesn't have any fingers at all. It doesn't have any... Uh, actuators that control machines it's not a robot it's just something that passively listens to the data that is coming in and then translates it um, or maybe translates from one language to another which is another thing that you can learn through Um, uh, supervised learning you just give it lots of examples from the european parliament where you have um, uh, different texts in different languages translated by human experts and then the network learns to imitate um, the the uh, text uh, that is given in one language and learns to um, to output the translation. Um, Facebook is, for example, uh, doing that 4,000 million times a day using an LSTM, which has learned to um, to, to help translating these things. But, but all of that is far away from general purpose AI because general purpose AI is really about solving problems without a teacher, without uh, some human supervisor which tra- tells the system what to do at which point. It's about uh, solving problems where you not only do passive pattern observation, but where you also interact with the world. So you act and you perceive and you act and you perceive the consequences of your actions. You are shaping actively the data stream which is coming in through your action sequences. And that's what babies do. And they learn about the consequences of the actions and they learn to come up with better policies with, with with better ways of um, shaping these incoming data in a way that is good for the baby. For example, some of the data is undesirable. Whenever they are bumping uh, against an obstacle, their pain sensors go off, and they don't like that. They want to minimize the uh, sum of the pain signals coming in. They want to maximize the sum of the pleasure signals coming in. and um, And that is something that goes far beyond... The, the AI on your smartphone, which is passive pattern observation, while the general AI is really about um, general problem solving, reinforcement learning, learning to solve arbit- computational problems where you are interacting with an environment.
0: Speaking of interacting with environment, I read about your big win. Uh, I believe it was at NIPS when you, when you uh, taught a program to virtually learn how to run <clears throat> excuse me um, could you talk a little bit about that you know that's, that's uh, in a virtual world of course but you basically taught a uh, virtual uh, human humanoid to learn how to run through an obstacle course I mean, can you t- tell us about that experiment and, how, and why, why you beat out everybody else in the whole world Mhm. That was an a competition at the
1: last NIPS conference which is the um most visible conference in our field of neural networks and AI and uh, there was this competition where the goal was to learn to run as you say and the the what was given there was um a video game simulation basically of a torso of a skeleton which had muscles. And all these muscles um, could somehow be used to to control the skeleton. Much like you are controlling through your brain the muscles of your body, and that's how you can, uh, solve all problems. And in the beginning, you don't know how to solve these problems. As a baby, you don't even know how to walk. But then, over time, you learn it without a teacher. And this was a competition just about that, was to build a, an artificial brain, a neural network, which uh, learns to control all these muscles such that the skeleton doesn't fall down such that it moves as far as it can from the origin and within a limited amount of time. And for that, it really had to learn to walk and to run. And maybe uh, those of you who have kids they know it takes about a year or so for a little baby to learn to control its muscles such that it can stand up and doesn't fall down and catches itself before it falls down and then moves forward and and really uh, uh, learns to 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 walk and then to run and our system also took many weeks of computation time, um, expensive computation time, actually, to train um, a network, uh, an artificial neural network, without a teacher, to um, to solve the problem. And it was very interesting to look at the intermediate stages, because, you know, in the beginning, uh, you are just trying to be always better than the best solution so far. In the beginning, there is no good solution at all. And... Um, And then if you're collapsing in a way that pushes your uh, final position a little bit further, that's already progress. And then at some point, the system learns really to um, to move forward, but it finds all kinds of suboptimal ways of doing that. For example, uh, it invented lots of silly walks where it is hopping a little bit and then maybe throwing one foot uh, a little bit into uh, uh, a little bit forward such that it gets some inertia um, such that it um, comes up with a silly hopping walk uh, that, that is better nevertheless than the best thing they had so far and then uh, finally after lots of computation time it really invented all these little important tricks like for example like an athlete um, who is standing up and then before he starts running he first um, goes down a little bit and pushes back a little bit on the heel and then uh, has a, a, a better way of moving forward and running and that's how it then really outperformed the competition and was able to to get much further than the second best and uh, third best um, competitors. And um, There were lots of competitors, more than 400 from industry and academia because um, this is really one of the, the, these challenging motor control problems where, um, the next, which are going to be so important for the next wave of AI, which is not just passive pattern observation on your smartphone, but which is really about controlling processes in the world, controlling machines, controlling robots. And uh, this is just a very nice example of that.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so tell me... <clears throat> My my, I heard a description <clears throat> of the results of that of that uh, competition, and I was told that the majority of other contestants had uh, skeletons that wobbled drunkenly uh, forward, and yours ran like an athlete. Does that have to do with your your You know, I, I can't believe that it has to do with you having access to faster computers than anybody else. Is it, uh, was it a larger neural network? Was it, was it a different design? Like, why did you, how did you outperform all these other people?
1: We didn't have uh, faster computers than other people. In fact, the fastest computers um, that, that are out there, they are at the major companies or in the supercomputing center. We do have a supercomputing center here in Lugano. And actually, by 2017, um, this was the fastest supercomputer in the Western world, although there were two faster ones in China back then. But um, we could proudly say it's the fastest supercomputer in the Western world. But we did not use that one. We didn't use that one. We used other sources of computational power and um, and there will be, I think, there will be a paper which is going to describe all the details. Basically, it's a bunch of little tricks, and often the little tricks make all the difference.
0: Got it. So we'll look forward to, to learning more about that. Um, but getting getting back to this idea of size, <clears throat> you know, our chief science officer, he's a neuroscientist and he studies how the brains work. And he's, he was telling me the other day that. You know, human neurons are not like uh, artificial neurons. They can do many different things, and they have a lot of different inputs and output capabilities. Or, <clears throat> and the human brain has approximately 100 billion neurons. So, how, how do you how do you think we're going to get to this approximation, this artificial uh, general intelligence? Um, are, is it, uh, is the network going to just have to be massive? Uh, are we going to need these little tricks? Um, are we going to have to change the way the neurons uh, in these deep neural networks work? Like, where what do you see this? What is the, what is it going to take to get to the artificial general intelligence?
1: Hmm. So even if we don't um,
0: have additional ideas on
1: how to build better better algorithms, even if our uh, learning software doesn't improve, even then we can expect lots of superhuman feats in the in the next few decades simply because hardware is getting better and better and every five years uh, it's getting ten times cheaper which means we can do a um, hundred times as much every ten years for the same price and that's an old trend that has held since 1941 so there's this younger trend which is Moore's Law which says that um, every 18 months you have um twice as many transistors on a chip and this law apparently has broken but the other law which is every 5 years computing is getting 10 times cheaper that still holds up and that has held since about 1941 when konrad zuse built his first program controlled computer which roughly could do One operation per second, one elementary uh, operation per second, and then every five years, a factor of 10. So after 30 years, we have a factor of a million. Um, One could do a million operations per second for the same price. And then um, after almost 80 years, now we have a a factor of a million billion. Now, if we look at a large LSTM of today, a large, long, short-term memory, it has maybe on the order of a billion connections. A billion connections, for example, when you are translating from one language to another, if you're using Google Translate, uh, as of 2016, Google Translate is using two um, connected LSTMs, one for the incoming language and one for the outgoing uh, outgoing language. And and there you have um, maybe a billion, a few hundred million, a billion connections or something like that or Facebook is using a very simple, a similar system uh, as of 2017. They are making 4 billion translations a day with, with an LSTM like that. Uh, so that's um, a big network with a, million, with a billion connections, but your brain has a million, billion connections. So it's still a million times bigger. So even if we just take what we know today, LSTMs, and just make them faster and bigger, you will see lots of things that will become possible and that will become cheap, which at the moment are not yet possible and cheap. And you will see lots of superhuman performance in all kinds of uh, applications. Uh, It's even hard to predict where you are going to see them. this is not going to be the final um, general-purpose AI. This is just to say that even the existing stuff which goes back to concepts of the previous millennium, even the existing stuff is, um, is, is, is good enough to, to let us expect a, a lot of um, very interesting uh, uh, developments in the next few decades. Going beyond that, of course, is something where the LSM is just a tool. Um, where you have systems that not only slavishly imitate what humans do, but also uh, invent their own goals. Systems that, like little babies, invent their own experiments to figure out how the world functions, how the world works, how gravity works, and so on. A little baby is playing with its toys to predict what's going to happen if I do that and that, and it's learning all the time to better predict the environment and then it can use these predictions this model of the world that is um, being created through these data which is coming in through the experiments of the baby uh, it learns to to um, to to use this predictive model to plan to plan new actions and it's always going to plan actions that are good for the baby so it's trying to uh, come up with action sequences that lead to a lot of expected reward and little pain. It doesn't want these pain sensors to go on. It wants the, the pleasure sensors to go on. And so it's choosing uh, the, the actions that are predicted to be successful using its uh, world model, its model, its predictive model of the world. And so all of that goes far beyond the plain LSTM. Although the LSTM can be used, to, to learn this model of the world, you need extra mechanisms that use it to, to, um, to allow this baby or this uh, self-improving agent to come up with new experiments that have the property that new data comes in that tell the baby, the learning agent, something about the environment, uh, something about a pattern in the environmental responses that it didn't know yet. And then it wants to incorporate that, and, and it wants to increase uh, the, the, the problem, the number of problem-solving skills all the time, always pushing the horizon a little bit. And this artificial curiosity, uh, these um, systems with self-generated goals, that always has been a main focus of uh, what we are doing. And there we, um, we, we see the true path to general purpose AI, not not just uh, slavishly imitate what what humans are doing, but really um, but really uh, gives the system the freedom to invent its own tasks, its its own problems, its own goals, like a little scientist. And so um, we have had little artificial scientists for a while. Uh, I think it's going to scale. There, the LCM is just a part of the whole system. Um, But but this type of research, I I believe, is is going to change uh, the world much more than the plain pattern observation that's already working so nicely on your smartphones.
0: It's very interesting. Uh, It sounds like um, we have a lot ahead of us in the next five years, and and, uh, computers will will be able to uh, do many, many more things. We're we're all uh, very interested in seeing all these things happen. Uh, we only have a few minutes left, so could you tell me a little bit about this company that you started, Nascence? Uh, you're a researcher and a professor, but you also decided to start a private company called Nascence. Tell us a little bit about what it is and what the vision for the future for nasance is. I'll be happy to do that. Nascence is
1: pronounced like Nascence, like birth in English, but it is spelled in a different way. N, n in the beginning and n for neural networks then ai for artificial intelligence and then sense nascence because it's about the birth of a general purpose artificial intelligence that learns to 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 um, that learns one new skill after another one new profession after another and also learns to learn new skills more quickly so really we are trying to build this general-purpose AI and commercialize it. Then, um, uh, it's the same company which recently, as we discussed before, um, won this uh, big competition, the Learning to Run competition at the NIPS conference. And um, we have some contracts with uh, some of the most famous companies in the world. I, unfortunately, I may not name all the companies, but some of them um, I can mention. The the largest steel maker in the world, for example, ArcelorMittal, um, uh, is is using our um, our um, uh, techniques to detect uh, defects and steel in steel. Then uh, Audi, for example, is a, a famous uh, car company and they um, with those uh, guys, we had a project where uh, little cars, model cars, baby cars, if you will, um, learned to park uh, this time they didn 't learn to run; they learned to park, translating the complicated um, sensory inputs from cameras and from uh, radar and, and lidar and so on into uh, actions for the car, such that it learned to park uh, in often challenging situations without bumping against other cars and um, or, 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 or other obstacles, just without a teacher. So that is the important thing. Again, like a baby, these little cars learn to do that. These model cars are interesting, by the way. They go hundred twenty kilometers per hour, so although they are small small they are fast, and they have all the sensors that see the the big car have. and then um uh, we have um we have um a finance operation where the where the goal is basically stock picking so you have Uh, a b2b part of our business which is done with a german fund which is called Acatis, a boutique fund they have maybe 3.5 billion under assets and uh, there we had the uh, a while ago already we had the first ai uh, driven portfolios or a deep learning system basically learns to allocate um, and reallocate the components of a portfolio based on um, uh, data that is coming in from from all these companies that want to evaluate. Uh, and this is limited to long-term value investing. However, we also have um, uh, similar things going for uh, short-term uh, trading and stuff like that. Then we um, really are in the middle of uh, this next wave of AI, as I like to call it, which is really about making machines smart. So... The, the next wave of AI is going to be much bigger than the current one, which is mostly about marketing and about, um, and about selling ads, um, which is an important part of the economy, but maybe just 1% or 2% of the world economy. And a much bigger part is really machines that make machines and tool machines and chemical processes and all kinds of processes that need to be controlled through uh, learning systems, which takes the sensor inputs, all these machines that we have today, they are getting smarter all the time, they are getting cameras and other sensors, and then they're getting little artificial brains like the ones that we are creating at our company, nascent to um, learn from experience to become um, better and to do what they are doing in a more efficient way. And I think in the not-so-distant future, for the first time, we are going to have little robots, and we will be able to talk to them like kids and to teach them like kids to assemble complicated stuff. For example, I will sit next to a robot and I will say, look, let's, ta- let's, take-, let's take this slab of plastic here and let's take a screwdriver and let's screw in this screw like that. And, uh, and, uh, and I will look at what he's doing he will look at what I'm doing and he will listen to what I'm saying and then uh, he will fail in the beginning. But then I will say no you shouldn't do it like that look like this like this and i won't touch it just by looking and by speaking to it uh, it is going to alarm better and better how to do that and then it will optimize by itself doing the same with less energy and um faster and once it can do it much better than i could do it then we freeze the learning aligning uh, capabilities and then the goal is to uh, make a million copies and and it's going to do that forever so stuff like that is going to change the entire economy of production in, in many, many professions. This is going to be important, and this is a much bi- a bigger part of the economy than the little bit which is currently so profitable in AI, which is marketing and advertising. So there, um, that is central to what our uh, company, uh, Nathan's, is doing.
0: Very exciting, and we look forward to hearing the word the the, the, the word nascent uh, mentioned a lot in the coming years. Uh, good luck to you and all those endeavors.